And what a blessing it is to read God's Word and share God's Word together. Will you join me in the reading that comes from Matthew 2, 16-18? When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and with great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. This is the word of God. Please be seated. It's an incredible honor to be with you and to be preaching on this first Sunday of Advent. I thank you so much for that blessing and for Pastor Mark and Pastor Brandon giving up a spot in the preaching order to let the old retired guy have a Sunday. It's really nice of them, in fact. I also want to give a shameless plug. I'll be doing an Advent study online, and you can find information for that throughout the week in all of our uh, media, and I'd love to have you be a part of that. That'll be on Wednesday night. starts this Wednesday night. We're going to be talking about the angels of Christmas and all the wonder and power in their role in the Christmas story. So I hope you'll consider being a part of that study on Wednesday nights leading up to Christmas. A few years ago, my wife and I were in an art museum. And I love to go see art because it, it has the power to transform. And sometimes it says things that, that I can't put into words. And in that museum that day, I had one of those moments, and maybe you've had one, listening to a piece of music or seeing a great piece of art or, or seeing a sculptor that is so profound it stays with you. And you know that it will be with you forever. We were making our way, making our way among the various paintings, and there was a long, dark hall. And at the end of the dark hall, there was a large painting, and it was turned away from me. So as I, I was walking down the hall, the darkness of that hall, I would notice that people would come up and they would take a look at the painting and just stay for like one second and walk on. Nobody stayed to contemplate the painting. And I wonder what it could be. And finally, I was able to come around and see what a startling painting it was. It was Leon Cognier's painting of the Massacre of the Innocents. It's one of the most profound and and, and troubling pieces of art I've ever experienced. You may remember the story in Matthew's Gospel of how the Magi came to visit King Herod and they were seeking the newborn Christ. And Herod, who who wanted to put the Christ to death because he viewed him as a rival king, says to the Magi, go and find him and tell me where you find him so that I may come and worship him too, only plotting to kill the Christ child. The Magi go and the angels warn them and they go back a different route and they never reveal where Jesus is born. And Herod is is infuriated. So he orders his soldiers to go out to Bethlehem in the area around Bethlehem and slaughter every child, every boy child, two years old and younger. And we don't talk about that much in the church anymore. But there was a time in Christian art and literature that was a big topic. We don't sing much about it at Christmas. Only the Coventry Carol really has lyrics about this scene from the Bible and the Christmas story. 
But Kanye captures it in such a powerful way. The woman we see is barefoot with her head uncovered. And he knew in that culture, no woman would ever be in public that way intentionally. She's been roused out in the middle of the night. The fact that her head is uncovered and her feet are uncovered reveals her vulnerability. Unlike a lot of paintings of this scene from the Bible, which are just full of of violence and blood and carnage, Kanye only implies it in the distance around the corner and not in detail. The city draws us to focus on the woman who is trying to protect her child with her own body. In her eyes, we see her terror and her fear. And Kanye has brought us into the painting. And we are the soldier who has discovered her. It's an incredibly sad and terrible moment. You you look at the story and and you wonder about it. In fact, in, in the way that Matthew tells it, it ends up with a ghost speaking. It's that wonderful text where he quotes what Jeremiah once said. It's the story of Rachel. If you don't remember the story of Rachel, she was Jacob's wife, and she was traveling the Bethlehem Road. She was pregnant with Benjamin, as we know him. And she died as she was giving birth to her son, weeping and crying. She named him as she died, Ben-child, On in Hebrew, child of tears. And in Jeremiah, a book in the Old Testament, she comes back to life once again when the children of Israel are hauled off into slavery. And she stands as a ghost beside the road where they're being carried away by Syrian soldiers and weeps for the children. Now once again... Matthew calls back her ancient spirit who weeps as these innocent children are slaughtered by Herod's soldiers. A ghost crying out in the night. Now, if, if, if I was Matthew's supervisor and he had brought me this story, I probably would have said, no, I think we'll leave that out. Right? I mean, after all, Mark and Luke and John all leave it out. Only Matthew records it. Why does Matthew include this in the story, this story in the Christmas story? Well, because, I want you to say the answer with me. Because God chooses to send his son into a broken world. This is the world as Matthew describes it. It's hard and there's violence and there's injustice and there's darkness. But it's into This very world, our very world, that God chooses to come in the form of a vulnerable infant. The incarnation is, in fact, the ultimate invitation to come home from a broken world. Would you say that with me? The incarnation is the ultimate invitation to come home from a broken world. 
God is saying to us, no matter how hard things are, no matter how dark things are, no matter how much the struggle seems to go on and on, I love you, I cherish you, you matter, and I'm coming to invite you to a place of peace, comfort, and love. And the invitation comes to us not in the form of a a letter or a card inviting us to a Christmas feast, The invitation comes to us in the birth of the Christ child. It's really the most remarkable thing if you think about it. God looks at the world that's that's broken where we sometimes treat each other so poorly. Where we turn our our back on on violence and on injustice. Hungry children, our own community. It says, I love you anyway. I'm coming to you to invite you out of this brokenness. Come home and be with me. In the center of my love, in the center of my heart. It helps maybe to look at at the players in the story. First, there's there's Matthew. The truth is we, we don't know a lot about him. We know that he was an apostle, one of the the first 12 chosen to follow Jesus. We know that he was a tax collector working for Herod Antipas, one of the the children of Herod the Great in the Galilee Sea region. We know that, that tax collectors were hated. They were kind of like mafia dons. They would squeeze the people around them for money, and anything they got that was greater than what was owed to the government they got to keep for themselves, where they were known for being unscrupulous and even violent in how they collected that money from their friends and neighbors. And because Matthew was a Jew and he was doing that with other Jewish people, he was particularly hated. In fact, there was a whole group within the Jewish culture of Jesus' time, a whole group dedicated to killing people like Matthew, his wife, and his children. And out of that treacherous and broken world, that Matthew had placed himself in, Jesus came to him and called him and invited him to be home with Jesus, be a part of of his family, share meals with him, to know him. Matthew is the most Jewish of writers in the Old Testament, more quote, I mean the New Testament, more Old Testament quotes, quotes from the Jewish Bible in his New Testament writing than any other scholar, any other writer in the New Testament. He loves to make that connection and to show us a Jesus who is the fulfillment of prophecy and the promised gift of a Savior. Matthew wants to contrast two kinds of home for us, represented by the worldly kingdom of Herod, a kind of of a home, a world that we live in, where power is the most important thing, getting what you want, grabbing what you can get, and holding on to it at any means. He contrasts that with the heavenly kingdom of Jesus which is a home place of love and mercy 
and compassion. Matthew is such a devout Jew that he won't even call it the kingdom of Jesus or the kingdom of God. He can only say the kingdom of heaven. He won't name God aloud. No devout Jew will do that even today. He says the kingdom of heaven 32 times. It appears in the New Testament, that phrase. All of them are in the gospel of Matthew. He wants us to know and understand that there's an alternative way to live. That home is that, that place that orients us to the world. It's the place where we learn how to interact with people around us. Where we can develop a relationship with God. And Matthew wants us to know that, that this heavenly kingdom, this home to which God is inviting us out of our broken world, has different standards and a different agenda and works differently than the world most of us experience every day. Matthew wants us to know that when things are at their worst, when we're at our most broken, still a light that shines and there's hope. Now we contrast that with the life of Herod the Great. Of all the people in the Bible, we have more information about King Herod from outside of the Bible than any other character in Scripture. He is well known. He, he has been described by, the, by his contemporaries, the historians of the time, the rulers of the time, the governors of the time, even the emperor of Rome himself. He was an amazing man in many ways. He, he somehow negotiated a political world in which he rose up from not much to become a puppet king of a kingdom, was a province in the Roman Empire. And he taxed that province more than any other province in the entire Roman Empire. So he was good at squeezing out the money and keeping Rome happy. He was also an amazing builder. He built seven fortresses, so when things got hot politically, he'd have a place to go. One of them is Masada, which is incredibly amazing. When we go to Israel, and we're hoping to go again, when we go to Israel, you get to see that. Up on top of a mountain where a small group of Jews held out against the Roman legion for almost three years. He was an amazing builder. He, he built a tomb that still to this day towers over Bethlehem. His tomb is gigantic. It looks like a mountain when you see it. That's, that's looking at it from Jerusalem, looking into Bethlehem, and that's his tomb even today. Where there was no seaport on the Mediterranean, he built one. He built cities that were reflections, and some people considered almost equal to Rome itself. He was a man of his hour and of his day. And he represented the best and the worst of what it means to be human. He could be incredibly cruel. He had ten wives. Each of them produced heirs to the throne. He slaughtered about half of them because he was paranoid they might try to usurp his power. He invited the high priest to come down from the temple one day and swim in his pool. In the middle of the winter, he had a heated pool, very unusual in the world in those days. 
brought the high priest in because the high priest had offended him. He grabbed him and drowned him. Matthew wants us to see Herod as a kind of Pharaoh. Matthew ties this story to, to, to the Moses story. And when Pharaoh commanded the slaughter of the children, God delivered his people out of bondage. Herod represents that kind of world. And Matthew wants us to know that, 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 that when there's power and there's evil and, and there's violence and destruction in the world... That just as God delivered his people from Egypt, and just as he offers us Christ, there is hope in the midst of that brokenness. That God still invites us home out of a broken world. God invites us to be at home with him. Places of comfort, Warmth, love, and mercy. How do you respond to that, right? I mean, here's Matthew breaking up my pretty Christmas story, right? I just put up all of our Christmas decorations. I don't have anything in our house that represents this story. I guess you probably don't either, right? How do you respond to a story like that? Matthew thought it was so important that he wanted it right up front in the Christmas story. In the season of Advent, when we prepare ourselves to receive yet again our Savior. In the season of Advent, when we're reminded that Jesus came in Bethlehem as a child and will come again as the ultimate king of all time. We respond. I think there are two important steps. The first is this. We have to accept the invitation. On a personal, one-on-one level, we have to accept God's invitation to come home out of a broken world. If you've not taken that step of, of claiming Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, professing your faith in Him publicly, see Pastor Mark or Pastor Brandon or myself, we'd love to help you. Take that step in your faith life. You may have been in church all your life, but if you haven't taken that step, what a beautiful time to do it this Advent season. For all of us, this is a time once again to become vulnerable and to recognize in our lives that we still need Jesus. We still need to hear one more time that invitation from God to come out of a broken world to be at home with God. Very emotional time for my wife and I. A year ago at this time, my wife was perfectly healthy. She never even got the flu. She was the most healthy, fun, beautiful person, traveled all over the world with me, leading church groups all over the world. Silly, funny girl who likes to have lots of joy and lots of laughter in her life. And a year ago at this time, she became mysteriously ill. Causes of her illness, we still don't know, but we understand that that her entire immune system completely broke down. She began to fall and to break bones. Now we've had weeks in the hospital and surgeries and all kinds of procedures. 
struggling to that road, recovery. We're both control freaks. We don't, we don't like to give up control to anybody or anything. Right? <laughs> We've had to recognize our vulnerability. We've had to ask friends and family for help. Just to get through the day. Just to make it from Monday to Tuesday. We've been reminded over and again that even in our brokenness and our hurt, God claims us and loves us. In the midst of that, we left a church where it seemed like we knew everybody and had close relationships with lots of people and came to a brand new church where we only knew a couple of people. And you've been so incredibly gracious and welcoming, and loving, and encouraging. We're so grateful for this congregation, for your love and your support, for giving us a home, spiritually, when we needed it the most. There's not been a single day we've stepped foot on this campus that Pretty and I haven't felt joy and hope. She will get better again. We'll reclaim a part of our life we miss so desperately. If you're here for the first time or you're watching online, maybe you haven't been in church in a while, it's time to come home. Come home to this congregation. Come home and have a place spiritually where you'll be loved, encouraged, and where you can hear preaching, music, every worship service. God's invitation to come home from a broken world. That's what this congregation does well. Second thing I think you have to do is this. I think we have to become intentional again as Christians in inviting other people to come home from a broken world. Maybe somewhere in, in reading this text, if you go through the week and read it again, I challenge you to do it if you can. You will think about someone in your world who's experiencing brokenness. And may God lead you to a way to bring hope to them. That's what we're called to do, isn't it? We, we reenact that every Sunday at the end of our worship service when we come to the Lord's table. It has many different meanings. But one of the great meanings of communion is, is that we're inviting the broken to come together and be healed. The love of Christ represented in that meal easy for me to think about food. I don't know about you. For the first time in 65 years, I, I prepared the Thanksgiving meal. And I'm, I'm very proud to say, I don't know how good it was, but everything came out hot, on time, and not burned. So I, I'm feeling pretty powerful and, and, and strong in that way. And it led me to remember maybe the, the most important Thanksgiving of my life. In 1979, I was an undergraduate student at Oklahoma City University, as we like to say, our Methodist university. And while I was a, a young student there, my mom had been there a long time. She was on the, on the staff there for 40 years, most of the time running dormitories. It's kind of hard to, to be at a small school like that and, and have your mom on staff. 
If I skipped my first class, she knew about it before uh, I'd walked, uh, before I'd wake, would wake up. I'd get a phone call. Why didn't you go to math today? Right? She was always known as a person of great hospitality. My mother grew up in a family of 13 kids on a farm. And her solution for every problem in the world was food, as you can tell. Right? She was famous for, for homemade cooking and inviting people to her table. If you don't remember what happened in 1979, probably a lot of you weren't even born then. On the other side of the world, in a place most Americans couldn't find on a map called Iran, a group of students there took 52 Americans hostage and held them in brutal conditions for 444 days. That was 1979. And on the campus at Oklahoma City University, we had an English as second language school where I worked as a tutor. And many Iranian students would come to that school and learn English so they could go to OU and learn petroleum engineering, that sort of thing, or go to OSU and learn about how to raise crops. And, and, and the school was full of Iranian students. And because of what was happening in Iran, I'm sorry to say, we didn't treat those students very well. And I confess to you that I didn't treat them very well. Oh, there were no acts of violence or anything like that. But we found many ways to let them know that they were unwelcome in our state, our city, and our school. Thanksgiving came around that year, and my mother's tradition was always to invite some of the students home for Thanksgiving at our table. And that year, she told me she'd invited four Iranian students to join us for Thanksgiving. And I was incensed. And I told her I wouldn't be there. And she said, I hope you find some place to eat. <laughs> My mother's cooking was not to be missed. And so I broke down and went, but I went with a scowl on my face. How can my mom do this? These people were our enemies. They were doing terrible things to our fellow citizens. They weren't our religion. I didn't go to church at the time, but I have that tape in my head, right? They were different. We gathered at that table, family, and these four students from the other side of the planet as different of us with us as they could be. Well, my dad died when I was a little kid, so I was always there to give the Thanksgiving blessing, you know, and I was all ready to say grace, and I'd worked up my prayer in which I was going to thank God for the people we loved. Get it? Not mention the ones we didn't. I was all ready to go. And my mother looked at one of the Iranian students Menas Ariste, and asked her to pray a prayer before we ate. And I listened to this 20-year-old college student from Iran pray to God, thanking God they had met real Christians 
who invited them to their table and treated them like family. God invites us home from a broken world. And all God asks in return is that we bring someone else to the table with us. Let us pray. Almighty God, we give you thanks for your incredible blessings. In the darkest moments of our human experience, you come like that Advent candle, a light in the darkness. You invite us home to respond, to leave our brokenness behind, and kneel and worship the feet of a baby. Lord God, for that we give you thanks. Amen.